1: Robinson is the Nothing Personal word of the day. It's a Samson sit-down, and I am lucky and honored to have Drew Robinson, a former Major League player, who you may remember we reviewed his movie called Alive, the Drew Robinson story, which is one of the most fascinating, heartbreaking, yet inspiring stories that I've come across in my 18 years in baseball. And we've got him. Drew, welcome to Nothing Personal. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Our audience is used to talking, sometimes we're jocular, sometimes we're serious. I think we're going to be a little bit of both, but I want to start seriously. I did a show with Marty Fish and we talked about performance anxiety, we talked about depression, we talked about anxiety, and I've gone through similar things with with terrible anxiety and panic attacks in the middle of meetings. And what interests me about your story, Drew, is not just the way you got through it, but really how you got through it. And I wanted to start with that. If people have not seen Alive, which I think they did because I asked them to on the show, your story doesn't just begin in April 2020. So I want to ask you, what were the events in your mind as you look back and try to capture in your mind what was going on that led to you trying to take your life in April 2020? Take me through that.
2: Yeah, I kind of word them as the three ingredients for the recipe disaster of the more acute um, things that happened in my life, the couple months leading up to my attempt. The first one being my first significant um, like season ending injury that led to a release, which was at that time in my career where I was just, I was slowly running out out of opportunity. So the fear of not being able to play baseball like was really weighing on my mind. Um, um, And then eventually getting to that off season really starting to question myself really with everything, but I just being, um, a little stubborn, I guess I try to point fingers or try to point to something, um, which inevitably led me to like, kind of question myself with my relationship at the time, um, which I was engaged to just an angel of a person. But again, I was just trying to like figure something trying to figure out why I was feeling so off. So I thought that it might've been my relationship. So I called off a wedding. And then getting to spring training the next year um, with the pandemic happening, being forced to kind of sit with all these um, really heavy feelings. I just had no idea how to articulate or how to understand. So those are the first three or those are the three things that manifested it into, like I said, the more acute symptoms. But those are really just kind of a, um, a culmination of a lot of lifestyle habits and a lot of ingrained thought patterns that I had throughout my life that, like I said, ultimately were just kind of a ticking time bomb for me, unfortunately. And it's, it's unfortunate because like I said, I could have learned about these things. I could have addressed these things without having to go through what I went through. And that's why I'm so passionate about um, sharing the story so openly, because I know for people who are really spiraling, sometimes it's, it's simply just hard to articulate what exactly you're going through, what you're feeling
1: so drew in your mind you were on a path to being a big leaguer you were you were absolutely a phenomenal baseball player tell me about what happens when you get released because i've released hundreds of players before and i admitted to our audience that when i call them in and i'm with the gm and and we sit down with the manager and say listen you know that's it you know not a minor league release a major league release it is the you're, you're really crushing somebody's dream and I never really thought about it because the minute they walk out of the room, I'm on to the next transaction, I'm on to the next situation with the team. What was going on in your mind when you got released? Did you think that was the last time that you would have an opportunity? Did you worry about what your future was? Was it money? What was going on?
2: Yeah, it was all the above for me. I think it's I think it's understood from from your end, from everybody, from both sides. It's just it's the process and um, knowing that doesn't make it any easier. And that's the, and I think that's where like the self work and all these things could come into play where you have like a, a, something to fall back on, which for me, I didn't, I didn't have anything to fall back on, which is baseball, baseball, baseball. So anytime I had a little bit of a a hint or some sign that I might be running out of opportunities or I might be out of opportunities. Um, it was just, like I said, I had nothing to fall back on. So it was just, I felt like i was just being hit with a ton of bricks or just trying to carry around this insane weight that was manifesting itself in fear anxiety um and ultimately like self-worth and self-doubt which for me i have realized and learned now that that is a sign of depression um it's not the stereotypical laying in bed um crying there's a lot of different forms of it and for again for me i just didn't have the awareness the education and the articulation for that so um
1: did you think the team should have done more for you drew was that an issue you know there's so much talk about minor leaguers and the amount of money they make and the housing and the food from a mental health standpoint either before your release during your release or after release do you look back and say god i wish the team had provided me with some sort of resource
2: i mean obviously yes and no i think um if it's if it's doable 1000 um but at the same time i think it's i think that's why Minor leaguers, similar to like me being passionate about sharing my story openly, I think that's why minor leaguers and baseball players in general are so passionate about kind of sharing, shining a little light on what it's like in the minor league so that way people getting into or players getting into, it, especially from high school, um, who haven't gone the college grind of really like having that expedited maturing process. So that way they know a little bit more of what they're getting into. So that way it's not such a, just a, a shell shock, like, Oh my gosh, this is really what it's like. So I think that's what's so important. But at the same time, I also see it being a thing where baseball and really society is taking a step forward with, with self care, because you're seeing it with, or you saw it with the physical side of things, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I mean, i I remember as recently as when I was signing, like not playing through a broken finger, I felt like I was going to get seriously judged for being soft um, and now we have incredible, like just an insane amount of, of, of a team for the medical side who are willing to give you a, a like a rub down if you're, if you're, if you're, if your are is sore. And back when I first started, that was like, no man, if you, if you can't make the club in the tub type saying, but now we realize it's so important just to take care, take anything off your plate that might hinder, um, the p- future pr- possible performance when the game starts. I see it as that a comparison with that, where. If guys are really dealing with something outside the field, how do we expect them to um, be able to kind of shut that off and focus when the game starts, especially in baseball, where there is a little bit more downtime than other sports. So um, having resources, I think, um, should just be a huge part of the puzzle of like, how do we get the best out of our players? And I think that's why it's so exciting to be a part of the giants. Cause I think they were doing this. And I think, I know they were doing this before my incident, and it's not the main reason, but it's definitely a, a big part of the reason why I think they had some success. Um, again, so I not- do want
1: to talk about the Giants and your new role as a mental health advocate for them. It's something that, again, during my time, we had, we had psychologists, we had psychiatrists, performance-based and trying to deal with personal problems off the field. But I must tell you, the focus for the majority of teams is on performance psychology and it's yeah. doing whatever has to be done so that during those seconds, during a baseball game, when you have to focus, when you have to perform, that you're able to, that you're, that you're not bringing anything off the field, on the field. And from a team standpoint, and, and, I, and I assume in the Giants, I know the Giants, obviously, Larry, and, and the rest of the people there very, very well, they are not different than I was in that their main goal is to win, right? That, that's it, they wanna win rings. And what's changed now is teams realize to win rings, you have to have players who are in a good mental health space. But the Giants are really ahead of the curve because most teams are just pretending to advocate for mental <laughs> health. And it seems like the Giants are doing it for real. Is that one of the main reasons that you were willing to be sort of the face of this because you believe in their genuine approach?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I think for me, a lot of this has been out of my hands. Um I've just kind of kind of been going on this, going with the flow of things and things have just seemed to be working out perfectly. Um, like I said, being a part of the Giants organization during my incident um, and then just, again, being part of it and having their support really through my recovery process before I had any kind of thoughts of making a comeback or anything along those lines, um, they were just supporting me as a human being. And it just happened to be where it worked out to where I made a comeback and then, Transitioned during the season to be part to to take on this role um, and kind of be the first one. So being the bridge for the players, um, like you said, to those resources of the mental performance of the of the mental health, our our director of EAP, which is in house, and I think that's a really big difference of having them in house, walking around, going through the day with us, um, in the cafeteria with us, in very casual settings instead of needing to be. Hey, this is the first time I've ever met you. And we're in this therapeutic environment, setting in a room, chair, couch, the whole, the whole setup, but having that like comfortability before that, that takes place, I think is a huge separator. And then having people like me and other teammates that are willing to talk about it um, and talk about how it's just a very preventative thing instead of an emergency crisis thing. It just lessens the blow because um, there is a stigma around it, obviously. So um, helping translate that helping to be, Kind of part of the movement, I guess, and like I said, I think it's definitely out of my hands where things have fallen into place and it's worked out nicely to where I'm a part of an organization who, like you said, generally takes it serious. And I obviously I can't speak for the other the other organizations, but being in it with the Giants, being going through it, having it be my job, um, right. it's not just a check a box type thing. It is full blown. This is what we're doing to support you as a human. Let's make sure everything is as good as it can be from our end with you as a human. And then um, let's get to work as a performer too. So it's it's a really, um, I don't know, it's just a very inspiring thing to see because um, like I said, I, I I know all too well I could have benefited from that if it was the case my entire career.
1: Drew, can you help me with something? And I want to help the audience, but really also me. It, I know what to do when a, uh, when a player needs Tommy John. I know what to say. I know what to say when there's a hamstring. I get that. You've referred some, you've used the word incident twice so far on the show. And, and I, I'm sorry to ask, but I, I want to learn because I want to understand. And I, it's so difficult to talk about suicide. And it, it's so pervasive now, with with young people, with older people. You're just you're reading about it much more. It's becoming talked about more. But help me with the nomenclature. You're calling it an incident. Is that how I should refer to it? Is it a suicide attempt? Can you can you tell me, please, Drew?
2: Yeah, I, I just I call it incident. I think that just kind of because at first I was calling it an accident, but then just bluntly, it wasn't an accident. I intentionally did it um so yeah i just it's really just another terminology attempts i i refer to it as my attempt my incident um it just seems like incidents the one I, I go to so there's no specific reasoning other than um just not calling it an accident or anything like that because unfortunately it was a horrible decision that i made myself so um yeah either one my attempt my incident either one is, is okay so
1: going. in april 2020 when when the incident happened and again I'm, I'm trying to be comfortable with it i want to talk to the audience about this can you help me what was in your mind if you can articulate it and and there's a lot of this is covered in in the show and in this story alive but but just for me and for us right before And then right after, I'm very curious to have a little bit of detail because is it like in the movies where you open your eyes and you're alive and you say, Oh my God, or is it, Oh, I'm alive. I don't want to be alive. Tell me if you, if you would, what was going on there?
2: Yeah, both of those situations happen. Um, for me, it was a very, it's just a very unfortunate buildup. Um, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't an emotional buildup. Like, here we go. I'm about to do it. It was like very, um, just because it was a thought out process with me, unfortunately. And I say it because it was so internal. Like I never obviously told anybody. Um, but for me, it was really just a huge level of disappointment that came out, um, in different ways of, like I said, my, my, I think my symptoms of depression wasn't the typical laying in bed, um, crying and, and things like that. I honestly, I, probably didn't cry for years before my attempt. And, um, but I just felt like this huge level that I was disappointing anyone that I came into contact with that. I thought that I was falling short in my relationship with Diana. I thought that I was falling short in my relationships with my friends. I wasn't keeping up with them in in our, I don't know, our our life achievements other than my my career, obviously. Um, But even then, I always felt like I was letting my coaches down and my teammates down because I was, physically very gifted. I was one of the guys I was, I could have tapped into having the five tool makeup. Um, but I just, I, I just like everyone else. I just had blocks. I had obstacles that were preventing me for letting my natural ability come out. And for me, it was just this insane level of trying to be perfect and perfectionism with my abilities. So every little mistake I just fixated on, which just naturally blocked me from my, my abilities. Um, so for me, I, I think, the main thing I was feeling was just a huge level of disappointment that I was letting people down. And then ultimately that led to feeling like I was ruining specifically Diana. I feel like I was just ruining her life. Like I said, she's just an angel of a person. And, um, the fact that I was questioning myself with her questioning our relationship for whatever reason, um, just because now looking back, it's just relationships are hard no matter who you're with. So I just didn't have that awareness at the time. And before my incident, I just felt like I was better off if I wasn't here because of those reasons and all those reasons that just I convinced myself of. You felt
1: you were better off or you felt the people in your life were better off?
2: I felt a little bit of both. Like I said, this was a really heavy weight for me to carry around. So I was just constantly uncomfortable. I was constantly unhappy with myself. And it really turned into a severe level of just bluntly self-hatred. I just, I genuinely hated myself. And because of all these reasons, I thought that I wasn't living up to my expectations, which I... I, I made up these voices that other people are having these expectations of I me mean, when really, no one really, not no one, but people just don't think about the things that I'm doing as intently as I'm doing to everyone else. Um, so I thought that it would be better off for other people, but more importantly, or more specifically, um, I thought it would be better off, I would be better off without me because of how heavy of a weight it was to carry around just Were, every- you,
1: were you getting relieved while it was happening? Did you feel that? sort of disappointment be lifted as you were making the attempt?
2: Um yeah, actually yeah. It was a very, like I said, it was a very calm, a very calm act for me. It wasn't like a huge buildup, like here we go, this is gonna be the end. It was just a very, all right, let's get this over with. It was more so the only thing that was really holding me back was the um was the uh, like the thought of my family and friends? Like I said, I although I thought that they'd be better off without me, I still felt like it was just going to break their hearts. It was going to be a very traumatic experience for them, obviously. So that was what took me longer than that. That's why there was like actual planning and and things leading up to the act. But um, even in the moment when I did it, it didn't actually. There wasn't any relief at all, um, mainly um, because it was it was not what I was expecting. I I pulled the trigger. My eyes, I continued seeing what I was seeing before I pulled the trigger. Um, and then for the next 20 hours, I was just around my house waiting for the end to happen. But ultimately, luckily that was not the case.
1: So that's, that's a moment, right? And that's when, when it happens, when you pull the trigger and then you realize that, wow, not only do I not feel the relief, but now I, may have even hurt myself physically, in addition to how I'm feeling mentally. Now what's my plan? So as the 20 hours is passing, and that's how long it took from trigger to discovery, just so we're clear, that's the 20 hours?
2: Yeah, from yeah, from, f- from pulling trigger to me calling for help.
1: So what in your head during those 20 hours, are you waiting for the relief? Or are you watching the disappointment continue to build up?
2: Wow. That's a really deep question. Um, that I would say both, um, like you said, at first, the first couple hours, I was just, obviously I was in shock cause I wasn't actually feeling the pain from the damage of what I did. Um, it was just more confusion of like, how am I still alive? Um, uh, I'm just expecting what I've seen in the movies. Um, so it was more confusion. And then, yeah, like I said, it was, it was just a scary moment because I was visually seeing the damage I was seeing myself. I was seeing what was, Um, the blood that was coming out, that was getting on on things in my house. Um, I was seeing the damage. So, so fear came back where I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is so serious. This is so extreme. Um, And again, just kind of waiting for the end every second. And when it wasn't happening, I eventually went to bed. And then when I woke up, that's the next day, that's when I really, the shock wore off. And that's when I felt the pain, which just the pain that I like, it's indescribable. Um, So that's where the physical suffering was matching my my internal depressive um, suffering. So that's where I had to start making start just contemplating two decisions for the next basically eight hours over um, of training again or calling for help.
1: So when you're thinking about it because you recognize that you may have been disappointed in yourself that the attempt didn't work, and that it led to more hours of pain. Did you have a thought process before the last eight hours of, well, I still have another round, why don't I just do it better this time? Or are you saying, let's hold on now, maybe this is God, maybe this is an intervention, maybe this is something, and then you close your eyes and open them, and I'm trying to get to what what you were looking at the minute you opened your eyes after falling asleep.
2: When I, after I woke up I just saw a light coming in from the blinds and thinking oh my gosh I'm still here I'm still in my house I'm still seeing what I see every day um, how is that just again it was more confusion how is this possible how is this possible I was aware of how much blood i lost I'm aware of the, the physical damage of what I did um, so it was more just confusion um, but it was there was definitely a moment when I got up later that day like around noon so about 16 hours later I had a mirror moment where I was looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the damage, not really being able to recognize myself. And I had a thought about baseball. So it's really kind of a, um, I don't know, just a sign of how much I care about baseball and how big of a thing it is me. because I had a thought of saying, my eyes really messed up. Maybe I'm not going to be able to play baseball again. So then I caught myself and realized, Oh my gosh, if I'm thinking about baseball. That's my, I'm thinking about the future. Am I wanting to survive now? So that's when the thought of like, Oh my gosh, Am I not waiting for the end? Is this a sign? Is there something bigger at play here? So that's when the next couple hours I was just like, OK, what am I what am I wanting? What am I doing? Um, and that led to me getting on the couch and holding the gun in the left hand, holding 911 dial in the right hand and ultimately making the decision to choose life, which um, obviously is a moment I reflect on a lot these days and understand how powerful a decision I had of that
1: it seems to me that when you chose to start putting in the work and that's really what the focus is and what people should take from your story is that no matter the valley no matter the depth of despair if you can find a way to somehow hold on and somehow there's a trigger that can happen whether it's baseball whether it's family whether it's seeing a sunrise something happened inside you that clicked and you were then willing to put in the work, not just the work to survive, I think people need to understand, the work to be a major league baseball player, which already is almost impossible to become. But now it's almost as though you're setting yourself up to be disappointed because baseball is a game of failure. Baseball is a game of disappointment. You know that the odds, no matter whether you have two eyes, three eyes, one eye, or you're ambidextrous of being a productive major leaguer is de minimis, yet somehow you pulled up your And you basically, obviously, colloquially speaking, and you went for it. And that was the beginning of your recovery. So, do you look back at baseball and say, wow, my talent saved me? My love of baseball saved me? Or is it just your determination and your decision not to feel like a disappointment anymore? Which of those three?
2: Yeah, I think it's a combination of those three and combinations of a lot of things of just having, just simply being aware that some, that I, like, this is out of my control, um, whether that's, I'm not the biggest religious person or, but it's just something bigger as is at play here, um, spiritually, energetically something, um, because realistically, and that's what kind of allows me to have some patience with trying to control everything, which is what I, which is what I had such a, had trouble with and still have trouble with today, um, with the perfectionism is just trying to control everything. Um, and now I've kind of, it just, it's one of those things where, if I was in control of everything, I wouldn't be here. So the fact that I can let that go and realize sometimes it's okay to let things just play out the way they're supposed to and just be okay with it and be patient with it and understand that somehow, no matter how uncomfortable it is, it's going to be teaching you something. And I think that's what kind of keeps that hope, that faith in the back of my mind that really I can get through anything because um, I've had depressive episodes since my incident. Um, No matter how good things I've gotten, I still have A challenge of this mentality that I'm, that I'm trying to reframe. Um, so having that hope that everything's temporary, um, good or bad, um, allows me to really appreciate when things are going well, because again, it's temporary. And then when things are going bad, um, having that faith that, okay, this isn't going to last forever because everything is temporary. So, um, Isn't that a
1: baseball lesson though, right? When you're, no one's as good as their hottest streak and no one's as bad as their poorest streak. So you (laughs) learned that in baseball, didn't you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty funny that I learned that in like the most superficial way possible because I used to always joke about with my teammates that when guys were trying to like have the the coolest looking cleats and and myself included, like trying to look our best. um, We used to always joke around, you never look as good as you think, you never look as bad as you think. So Um, Don't work. Don't get too caught up in that. But really, that's like you said, it's kind of a lesson you can apply to everything. You're never you're never doing things as good. as You think you're never doing them as bad as you think. So um, lessening that blow on yourself when you think you are failing and then staying a little bit more grounded when you think you are on top of the world.
1: You know, Drew, what's interesting is the way people evaluate you as a baseball player, we're not looking necessarily at the result. We're not looking for you to go 10 for 12, right? Or we're looking to see what your approach is. We're looking to see what you do after an 0 for 4 game. We're looking to see what you do after a 4 for 4 game. Does it impact your preparation? Does it impact your approach the next at-bat? Do you understand the situations you are in when you're at the plate? Do you take bad at-bats to the field? So it's funny, people, when they come up to you, must say wow you are the extreme but now you have a platform where you can speak to people who actually think the way you think who look at you and say wow that is both courageous and nerve-wracking what he went through what do you say to people when they say help me I need to get to where you are now but I can't see it from here what do you tell people to do
2: well, first of all, getting to where I got where I where I am, um, I would help, try to help them reframe that because that just kind of plays into the the comparison mindset of comparing or just trying to be where you're not, uh, which I think is a challenge. Again, myself face and a lot of people face way too often. I'm trying to be somewhere else or trying to get to somewhere else. Which it's good. You know, everyone's always obviously, obviously trying to improve and and learn and, and grow in their life and succeed in their life, but always focusing on where you're not and where someone else is at and where how that might be better or what what that case is it's more about finding appreciation for where you are is where i would say that that might come into play because like i said i i just never took the time to appreciate where it was i was there's times where i was playing on a major league baseball field and just totally caught up in how i messed up in the conversation earlier in the day or how i messed up that that practice ground ball early in the day or how I'm not as good as Mike Trout. Like I just, I could never sit there and and soak in where I was at or appreciate where I was at. And I say that even on the good side, obviously it's much harder to do when things aren't going as, as well in our life for what in whatever phase we're in or whatever situation we're in. But I think the, the practice of taking or having appreciation for where you're at, no matter if it's good or bad, like I said, at some point, if you're in in a tough place or a tough going through a tough phase, a lot of the times you'll be able to to look back a year from then and almost think that situation from happening because it's going to probably teach you something you needed to learn so I use the example of my two seasons in the minor leagues when I was the worst player statistically in the league Um, I was a wreck at the moment don't get me wrong it was the most uncomfortable phase it was was, I was a wreck but looking back those years taught me way more than the years I went out and did well so um, I say all that because I think looking at me or needing to be where I need to be or just wanting to be where anyone else is, um, is a is a tricky, is basically just a trap. And it's a tricky thing to get through because it's not teaching appreciation. It's teaching if I can be somewhere else, I'll be happy. But then when you get there, you'll inevitably be looking for the next thing. Um and you'll never practice that appreciation for where you're at, which
1: how is important for- was was Neurostar in your recovery?
2: Yeah, NeuroStar was a huge part of my recovery. Um, Can you explain
1: what that is? I know we only have a few minutes left. I'm sorry, but I, I want people to hear about this.
2: Yeah, no, this is an amazing technology, um, really life changing technology, and it's it's so I'm so passionate about it because I've gone through the entire process of what of mental health challenges. So I went through my exams. I went through depressive episodes afterwards, which is really tough for me because I had that such a, life, a near-death experience, I had this life-changing perspective. And I thought, you know what, this is good. I'll be able to fall back on this and use this and never have a bad day again. But inevitably, like I said, I have some kind of um, imbalance in my in my body that creates some really unfortunate circumstances, even though situational situationally, my environment's pretty controlled. But um, this technology is just, it's a non-invasive technology. So you don't have to take medication um, and you go in, and it's a 36 treatment process, and it's using this magnetic stimulation to, to create activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is a part of the brain that's very underactive in people who have uh, mental health disorders. So it's 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 an amazing thing because when you take medication, sometimes if you're if you're taking one that's not the right fit for you, it could actually increase your your symptoms or, or create negative side effects. So, and that's something again that I experienced after my incident. I've gone through the process of trying to find the right fit for me chemically. Um, And each one, I went through about five or six of them and tried to combine them. And each one, everyone, every once in a while, I feel a little bit of a benefit of what I was after, but it was always outweighed by another physical symptom um, that was affecting me negatively. So it was really disheartening because like I said, I was finally open to getting the help that I was needing and finally admitting that I didn't have it all figured out. Um, But then I would feel even worse at times or feel like numb at times. And it was kind of taking away my natural personality. So this technology of it not being something you have to put in your body and something that you, that you just rest on your head that creates this magnetic stimulation, uh, which creates activity in the neuro, the neurons in the brain that are connecting. Um, again, it's just an amazing technology and something that I really wish I would Can have anybody about.
1: access it true. Or do you have to be rich to get it? Can anybody access it?
2: <laughs> anybody can access it. You can, you can talk to your provider, your physician, your doctor. Um, and it's, it's the same process of, of everything else. It's just with, the, with um, insurance and everything. So it's, like I said, it's, it's such a huge part of my journey and it, and it's something that I saw such good benefits from because walking around with such negativity at times, like I do, um, it's a really draining thing energetically. So I feel like this thing gave me a, a huge boost of energy to help, reframe those ingrained thoughts that I just ingrained over 28 years of, um, pessimism basically. And at times these last two years when I try to work really hard to reframe those into more positive light, sometimes I just don't have the energy to do it. And I feel like Neurostar was a huge part of it to help me, um, gain some energy to help reframe those things more consistently, which inevitably leads to a little bit better lifestyle perspective.
1: So Drew to end now, can you give me one word? Cause I I'm going to give you one word and I'm going to go second. I'd like one word that you would ask people or suggest that people would use to describe you who know you. What is the one word that you would want people to use?
2: Um, I feel feel almost ignorant saying this because I still struggle with self-confidence, but I would hope inspired.
1: So we're done here because the word that I have is inspirational. So if you want to know more, listen, you you see it at the end of TV shows. You see it when people do shows like this. If you are having feelings of harming yourself, there are ways to get help. There are suicide prevention hotlines. There are stories like Drew's that you can listen to, that you can watch, you can read about and understand that. You may feel alone, but you're not. And there is a possibility of recovery. There's so many people and techniques. And Drew Robinson has dedicated his life now, not just on the baseball field, being the mental health advocate for the Giants, but really available to tell his story because there's an opportunity, not for comparison, but there's an opportunity for you to be helped. So please learn and understand what Drew Robinson went through and agree how inspirational he is. Drew, thank you so much for taking the time today. We really appreciate you.
2: Of course, I appreciate you having me. I would like to add on to that last little bit too of not not always the alone part, but also the misunderstood part. I think that's what something some a topic people really struggle with when they are struggling internally is that if they do speak up, they're going to be totally misunderstood by whoever they're talking to. But the quote that I always hold on to in those situations when I am feeling that way is that the people around me would rather hear from me than hear about me. So anyone who's listening who's going through it. Just remember those words, because like I said, it, it, it rings so true for people who are really spiraling.
1: Thank you, Drew. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile,
2: and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily
1: find what you need. Plus,